Four days from now, four days behind us. Two anniversaries. And it is in the juxtaposition of those two anniversaries that my heart has been pondering. The calling of the chosen. One anniversary, four, four days from today and 490 years ago. A young German priest, and pastor and professor strode across the leaf-strewn plaza of that tiny little village, walked up to the castle church door, wooden, pounded onto that door, 95 challenges to the sale of indulgences by the Church of the Middle Ages. October 31, 1517, in the village of Wittenberg, just in Germany four weeks ago, just to be in that nation where Martin Luther, wow, Martin Luther, unwittingly ignited that spiritual revolution that we still call the Protestant Reformation. Four days from now, the anniversary. Four days before today, another anniversary. Four days plus 163 years ago. A middle-aged American Baptist farmer turned preacher in upstate New York quietly awaited the fulfillment of four passionate years of preaching his heart out. So convicted and convinced was he of the veracity of Daniel's prophecies that he had unashamedly predicted on the authority of the Word of God that on October 22, 1844, Jesus would return to this planet. And so, four days ago, plus 163 years ago, William Miller and thousands of Christian believers up and down the eastern seaboard counted the hours until Jesus would come. Soon we'll be done with the trouble of the world. Going home. They hoped and prayed, but Jesus didn't come. And so 490 years after Martin Luther, and 163 years after William Miller, we're still here. The Protestant Reformation is still in progress. In fact, I carry in the back of my Bible a quotation just to buck my spirits up at times when I get discouraged. A quotation that declares the Reformation did not end with Martin Luther, but that Reformation that he ignited shall continue until the last day of earth's history. That Reformation must go on. And it occurs to me in a university setting like this that we have some young Martin Luthers here. We have some young William Millers here. Or... Wilhelmina Miller's here. We've got you here. God has already spotted you. You weren't born by accident. This series began reminding you, you are a child of destiny. You are you because God called you to live. Ah, So, we're still here, which is why we, we are tracking the footsteps of the chosen through the wilderness to the promised land. We're on, a, we're on the same journey, going to the promised land, also wandering in this wilderness, this series, The Chosen. We come to the heart of this series, four critical issues to the children of Israel as they tiptoed across those hot desert sands. And obviously, these four issues are critical to us because in our pulpit survey this last spring, you wrote it down. I want to know about this, 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 and this. And so these four, what do we do with the prophet? That was last time you and I were together, how to stone the prophet. 
Question number two. What do we do with the diet? Read alcohol. That would be today. Question number three. What do we do with the dress? That's coming up next Sabbath. How much of naked is acceptable? And question number four. What do we do with the sex? That's two Sabbaths from now. How to live without sex for a while. And in the second service only, as we will today, we will end with live Q&A. Any question that you have on the subject today, I hope you'll ask. don't know if I'll have the answer, but let's hear the question. We'll wrestle together. So today, you get a question in the middle of the presentation here, scribble it down. All right, just scribble it down, then step up to one of these mics. It'll be ready to go. Let's pray. Oh, God, sooner we'll be done with the troubles of the world, going home to live with God. That passion has ignited generations since the days of Enoch on this planet. We are not abandoning that hope. We are a university raised up because of that hope. As we worship today in Holy Scripture, please, please let this be clear. Let the Spirit have access to my mind and all of our minds for the sake of Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So I'm going into the cafeteria this, this last week to have a lunch. I like to eat the cafeteria food because it's great food. I go into the cafeteria to eat. And I'm always looking for somebody to sit with. And four students said, hey, pastor, come on over here. I love to eat with students. So I sit down and we fall into conversation. And I notice on the cafeteria food table that we were sitting at, these little sandwich boards, you know, these little cardboard triangle things that they put to, to advertise stuff. And so I pick it up. Apparently, it's health week. Either next week or this week, I'm not sure. But there's health week going on. And then there's this quotation from uh, Mark Twain. And so I had my, my uh, receipt from eating there. Great food and a great price. <laughs> and on the back of the receipt, I scribbled down, I scribbled down Mark Twain. Okay, this is a quotation from Mark Twain. It sets us up for our, our teaching this morning. The, Mark Twain once said, The only way to keep your health is to eat what you don't want. All right? Drink what you don't like and do what you'd rather not. And you will keep healthy. With that thought in mind, would you open your Bible, please, to the New Testament, the book 1 Corinthians, chapter 10. Forget about Mark Twain. We don't need him. We'll take St. Paul instead. 1 Corinthians, chapter 10. You didn't bring a Bible. You really need to track because we've got a dynamite story coming up. And so you want to grab the pew Bible in front of you. This will be page 772, New King James Version. That'll be what I'm in this morning. 1 Corinthians, chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10. All right. This is a perfect setup, by the way. These few verses set us up for the next three presentations, covering the heart of this series. Here we go. So this is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I like to say brothers and sisters. The newer translations, that's what I like about them. They're gender inclusive. Moreover, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers... Oh, time out, Paul. Who are you writing to? I'm writing to a bunch of pagans who've become Christians in Corinth. Are you serious? You mean once, we, once we're baptized into Jesus Christ, the whole story of Israel becomes ours? That's my point, boy. Our fathers. I'm calling them our fathers. Moreover, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. That would be the Red Sea. Verse 2, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And that really feels strange. I mean, baptized into Moses, please. What's going on here? 
here's Paul's point. There was a cloud overhead, so there's water content. There's water on this side of the Red Sea, water on this side. They went under the water. Paul is saying, and by the way, they're baptized into their leader. It's a metaphor for Christian baptism. When you're baptized into Christ, he's your leader. You go into the water and you come out certain of who your leader is. That's what Paul is saying. So they were all baptized into Moses. Now notice this, verse 3. All ate the same spiritual food because it was supernatural in origin. All drank the same spiritual drink because it was supernatural in origin. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Hallelujah. When you're wandering through the hot desert sands of life, I've got, Paul says, I've got great news for you. There is a rock that will be your shade, your shelter, your safety, and your salvation. Thank you, Jesus. The rock is Christ. You will find that rock in your wandering through this university and through the rest of your life. That rock will always be there. Uh-oh, but some bad news, verse 5. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness, i.e., they never made it to the promised land. Died, little burial mounds, tracking their journey, little humps, little humps. One by one, an entire generation is buried. Oh, what's going on here? Verse 6. Oh, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Now, I need to tell you that the Greek word for lust here is epithumeo. It means to desire deeply. It is not a sin to desire deeply. You can, come on, God made you with desires, so desire deeply. Just don't desire that which will kill you. Just don't desire what will kill you. That punchline is so important to Paul that he repeats it. He does it in verse 6, then drop down to verse 11. All over again. Now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul's point, the story of the chosen in the beginning, will be bookended by the story of the chosen in the ending. In the a- They upon whom the ends of the ages have come. They'll be the story. And by the way, Paul says, their story is preserved here so that the story of our movement will be protected over here. That's my point, Paul says. Learn the lessons that they went through. In fact, that point is so critical. Would you grab your study guide out? Is it there in your worship bulletin? Pull your study guide out, please. Thank you, ushers. You're going to want this study guide. We're going to get to alcohol. Eight resilient factors. You want this list. Trust me. Hold your hand up. If you don't have a study guide, we have enough for everybody in the balcony, here in the front. Hold your hand up. Take your study guide out. And let me say to those of you watching on television right now, delighted to have you. Let me put our website on the screen for you. www. See it there on your screen. www.pmchurch.tv. As soon as you go there, you'll see different logos for the various sermon series. This is the one called The Chosen. Click on to The Chosen, then it will show you the teachings. You want this teaching, How to Eat, Drink, and Be Merry Without Getting Stoned. Click on to that, and it'll say Study Guide. You will have the identical study guide we are going to go through this morning together. So if you're watching on DVD, just hit the pause, get that, and then rejoin us, please. All right, the, 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 the sentence at the top. Let's fill it out. First sentence of the study guide. Their story was preserved so that our movement might be protected. Key point. Protected. Keep your pen moving. The lessons of the chosen in the beginning must be lessons for the chosen at the ending. Some of you are still getting your uh, study guide. Let me just remind you that if you don't get an answer here, go to our website. The answers are at the bottom of all the study guides. So you'll, you'll be able to, uh, to get what you missed here. 
But let me repeat that, uh, number two. The lessons of the chosen in the beginning must be the lessons for the chosen at the ending. Paul says, remember their story. What story do you suppose Paul is talking about here in uh, verse 6? Ah, let's track, let's track Israel for a couple days in the wilderness. Go back to the fourth book of the Bible. That would be the book of Numbers. In our teaching last uh, time, How to Stone the Prophet, we were also in Numbers. Go back to uh, Numbers, please. Only this time, we're going to be in Numbers 11. I believe last time we were in Numbers 12. So go back to Numbers 11. Paul says, I want to, tell you, I want, I want to remind you of a story. Well, well, we'll be reminded right here. Numbers chapter 11. Oh, I didn't give you the page number. 101. If you're looking for it in the, there in the Old Testament. 101. Numbers 11, verse 4. Now the mixed multitude. I need to just hit the pause button right there because scholars are scratching their heads and saying, who, who, who are these? They're not quite sure who they are. One commentator says, it, it really, uh, the Hebrew ought to be translated, now the riffraff. Riffraff. Uh, what seems clear is that when Israel fled in that midnight hour from Egypt, there were Egyptians that said, we are going with you. You've just messed up our pantheon of gods. We're, st- we're, we're going with your God. He must be the strongest around. We'll follow you. So there is this, there's this, there's this crowd within the community of faith. There's always a crowd within the community of faith. There's this crowd. Their bodies are in the community, but their hearts are back in Egypt. Kind of like Mrs. Lot who left her heart in Sodom. You remember that? So it's the same here. Uh, Verse 4. So now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded. Look at this. Yielded to intense craving. Hit the pause button again because, and you have this in your study guide, those words, intense craving in the English, are actually the Hebrew, ta'ava, ava. Those are two words. Same word, back to back. It means craving, craving. In other words, it's a double craving. It's intense. Double craving. Which, by the way, jot this down, is a classic definition of appetite. Write in the word appetite, please. For what is appetite? But an intense craving for food. For alcohol, for tobacco, for chocolate, for caffeine, for cocaine, for sex, for gambling. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Appetite is that craving. And if I keep your pen moving, appetite constantly yielded to results in addiction. If you keep yielding to that appetite, you become addicted. Whatever, whatever. Here's something from Wikipedia. Technical definition. You have it uh, in your study guide. We'll put it on the screen for those of you viewing. And Wikipedia got this from the NeuroEd, okay, dealing with psychology and, and neurology. They got it from that website. Here it is. Addiction is a state of physiological or psychological dependence or devotion to something manifesting as a condition in which medically significant symptoms liable to have a damaging effect are, are, are present, end quote, i.e., If you do this long enough, it will affect you. If you eat this long enough, it will affect you. If you drink this long enough, it will affect you. It will will impact your organism. That's what addiction does. Okay, so now that we got that clear, verse 4, Now the mixed multitude who are among them yielded to intense craving. Now here, here, the plot thickens. So the children of Israel also wept again. Now, that word again is key because this has been going on over and over and over. Moses almost melts down in just a few verses. We'll note that. It's happening all over again. These belly acres are going all over again. 
And so the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat? That's Hebrew for flesh food. Who will give us flesh to eat? Look at verse 5. Oh, we remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. That guy gets you hungry for dinner, doesn't it? Verse 6, but now, oh, now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except that manna, 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 I'm sick of this manna. Nothing but this manna before our eyes. We went to Honduras this summer as a Watts Nelson uh, kind of a family thing, a tribe, and we conducted four simultaneous evangelistic uh, Crusades in the great city of La Ciba. And if you've gone south of the border, you know this is true. Those cooks south of the border, they can take just a little bit of cornmeal. Have you noticed this? Just a little bit of cornmeal. And they can make soft tortillas. They can make hard taco shells. They can make stuffed burritos. They can make crunchy chips. All from just a little bit of cornmeal. And they come up north of the border, by the way. And they say, what is up with you Americans? You are always eating bread. You have bread in the morning. You call it toast. You have bread at lunch. You call it sandwiches. You put everything under the sun between those slices. You have bread at night. and You call them dinner rolls. Why are you always eating bread? And if you go over to China, morning, noon and night forever, it's rice. Cultures tend to gravitate around a particular staple. And the children of Israel are no exception. Only for them... It was genuine miracle food. I watch television. I see these advertisements. Oh, this is a great miracle food. No, they had genuine miracle food. And it was called manna. It was a white, seedy, frost-like substance that appeared with the dew every morning, six days a week. So you had manna for breakfast and lunch and supper on Sunday. And then on Monday, you had manna for breakfast and lunch and supper. And then Tuesday, manna breakfast Lunch and supper. And you get the picture. It's just manna the whole blooming week. Until, until you come to the Sabbath. No manna. Oh, it's true. You're going to eat manna again. It just doesn't come on the Sabbath. Something supernatural. God says, I want to tell you something, guys. I want to tell you about my seventh-day Sabbath. I've given this to the human race. I did it from the beginning in Genesis. And I'm going to, by a supernatural miracle, show you which day of the week. You don't have calendars on your tent walls. That's okay. I'll show you. Every seventh day, there won't be a drop of manna. So on Friday, what I want you to do is go out and get a double portion. I rest on the Sabbath. I want you to rest on the Sabbath. So every Sabbath, a supernatural proof, this is the seventh day. Now, by the way, it's, it's, it's miraculous because during the week, if on Wednesday you're saying, you know what, I'm sleeping in on Thursday, I'll go out today and get a double portion. By Thursday morning, that stuff is stinking rotten. It will not keep. Only the co- double collection on Friday keeps. Proof, by the way, to those who say that the Sabbath was given on Mount Sinai. It, uh, the Sabbath is a gift of the Jews. It came with the Ten Commandments. Are you kidding? This story is before the Ten Commandments. The Sabbath goes all the way back to creation. And God supernaturally proved which day by the seventh day miracle. Yeah, well, of course, that doesn't make the manna any more palatable if you've got the we got to have the meat hungries in your heart. And they got them. So Moses says, let me tell you about the manna, by the way. Let's pick it up again in verse six. People weeping in the people weeping. But but our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Now, verse seven, the manna was like coriander seed and its color like the color of bedellium. That would be white. Verse eight, the people went about and gathered it just like south of the border. They gathered it. 
They ground it on millstones. They beat it into mortar. They cooked it into pans. They made cakes of it. And its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. I'm thinking kind of like Krispy Kreme donuts. I'm thinking that's probably the taste. It says it's like pastry. So it must have been good. Verse, but you know what? You get tired of Krispy Kreme if you had it every day. Verse 9. And when the dew fell on the camp in the night... The manna fell on it. Now, verse 10, watch this. Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent. I've got to tell you about the Middle East. You just watch the film out of Iraq. When people mourn, they never mourn in private. Not in the Middle East. You go out in the middle of the street and then you beat your chest and you, you, you cry to the heavens. They got it from way back then. Everybody's in the door of their house and they're all just wailing. And I'm telling you, it is cutting Moses to the quick. Apparently bothered God too. It says the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. And Moses also was displeased. You know what? We're too hard on our leaders. Way too hard on our leaders. Do you think it is a picnic to lead the likes of you and me? Do you think for a moment? Don't you know? Look, you know what Moses does? He says, I, I, I just can't take this. And he gets alone with God. The next few verses, he gets alone with God. And he says, now let me just run this by you again. I'm supposed to lead this people how long? What have you called me to be? He says it. Have you called me to be a nursemaid? What do I have to do? Give them a little bottle and burp them every day? Get them through this? They're driving me crazy, God. I'm tired of leadership. Trust me, our leaders get tired of leading So when you and I are given extra digs and jabs, we're only making it harder for the leader. Next time you you got an issue with the leader, why don't you pray for her? Why don't you pray for him? That's what you're supposed to do. Don't wail and get a little crowd weeping with you. In fact, Moses Moses is so heartbroken over this. Look at verse 15. You know what Moses says? God, he says, God, hey, God, tell me, do you love me? God says, of course I love you. Then Moses says, if you love me, kill me. Look at that. It's right there in verse 15. Kill me. Pull out that gun. Put me out of my misery. It's tough sometimes to be a leader. And then God says, hey, the Lord God. All right, children, Israel. All right. I've heard you. You have an intense craving, an appetite for flesh food, do you? I am going to give you meat until it comes out your nostrils. And he does. Verse 31. Look at this. Can you believe it? Verse 31. Now a wind went out from the Lord and it brought quail from the sea and left them fluttering near the camp. About a day's journey on this side and about a day's journey on the other side and all around the camp and about two cubits above the surface of the ground. I used to think that that quail stacked up to about two cubits. One cubit, tip, elbow to tip, 18 inches, one cubit. So two cubits would be about three feet, about a yard, yard and a half. They're not quite sure. I used to think that the quail piled up that high. No, that's not what happened. I was reading a, a scholar this last week. You know what happened? The quail came down and fluttered at three feet above the ground. Because if the, if the quail are fluttering at eight feet, I'm out of luck. But when the birds are right here, choom, 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 and that's exactly what they did. They fluttered within arm's reach. Look at this. You can't believe this. Verse 32, and the people stayed up all that day. And the people stayed up all that night. And the people stayed up all the next day. And they gathered the quail. And hold on now, hold on to your seat. 
He who gathered least gathered ten homers. That's the, this is the least. That's the equivalent of 62 bushels of quail. The guy that got the least had 62 of those apple bushels around his tent. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. They killed it. They want the meat to dry. They're going to cure. Hey, baby, we got, we got meat to the promised land. Hallelujah. But watch this, verse 33. But while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people. And the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. You know what? God didn't have to do a thing. If you are eaten with a feverish pitch, you will kill yourself. Cramming it into your mouth. You'll kill yourself. And what happened in verse 34? So Moses called the name of that place, Kibroth Hata'ava. Remember? Tava'ava. Intense craving. He named it the Graves of Craving. The Graves of Craving. So here's the question. So what is it that you crave for? What is it that I crave for? What do we crave for here at Andrews University? What do we crave for in the Pioneer Memorial Church? What is it? The list could be endless, I suppose. But may I mention one that turns out to be two? I had a mother come up to me at camp meeting this summer. She said, Pastor, I have to talk with you. So we got off the beaten path. Turns out the mother has a daughter that is attending, is a student at Andrews University. And the daughter has confided in her mother that she's worried for her friends who go off campus on weekends for drinking parties. And the mother looked me straight in the eyes and she says, Pastor, you're going to have to say something about this. I came home from camp meeting and then got out the surveys from the spring and began to look at the surveys and you were saying the same thing. So today, I'm saying something. May I read a list of statistics to you? These are compiled over 12 months by the Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism Task Force on College Drinking. The Adventist Review came out with a special issue on addiction. Carried these statistics. The following statistics for a year bring into focus the consequences of college drinking. All right? Over a 12-month period in the United States of America, here's what happens. 1,400 students aged 18 to 24 die. Do you understand? Die. They don't get sick. They die. 1,400. Every year, 18 to 24. 500,000 students aged 18 to 24 are unintentionally injured. Half a million. 600,000 students aged 18 to 24 are assaulted by another student. 70,000 students in that same age bracket are victims of alcohol-related sexual assault or date rape. And hold on to this. 400,000 students in that same age bracket have unprotected sex and more than 100,000 of them are too intoxicated to know whether they had consented or not. 25% of college students report negative academic consequences from their drinking. 150,000 students develop an alcohol-related health problem. 1.2 to 1.5% of students indicate suicide attempts, attempts within the past year as a result of alcohol or drug use. What's going on? we got an epidemic in America, and it's happening on our campuses. This is the whole nation. I tell you what, based on empirical evidence alone, you can understand why a, un- a university like ours would forbid the use of alcohol, period. 
We're not dealing with rocket science here. Does it then get used around here since it's forbidden? I was, I've had several conversations with Dwayne McBride. He's a sociologist and a researcher here at Andrews University. And Dwayne has told me about a 20-year study that he and a team of researchers have, have undertaken. 20 years studying only Adventist young adults attending Adventist colleges and universities in the United States. And they have discovered that our students use alcohol and drugs at a rate two-thirds less than the students in the general population. Hallelujah. Except, obviously, there's still concern for the one-third. Nobody needs me to stand in front of you today and present a case for the destructive effects of alcohol on the human brain. The college statistics we just shared are evidence enough. Please. However, the biblical, the biblical case for the abstinence from alcohol, while it is made textually, and I put a few verses there in your uh, study guide, Proverbs 20, verse 1, Proverbs 23, uh, verses 29 to 35. You can go to 1 Corinthians 10, 31. You can go to 1 Corinthians 16, 19 and 20. Your body is a temple of God. You cannot defile it. I mean, we can make a case textually. The Bible's strongest case, however, listen, the Bible's strongest case is made anecdotally through stories. I heard a story just two weeks ago. In fact, it was our children's story in First Church. Two weeks ago about a village in India where elephants broke into the village distillery. They didn't know what was in it. They broke into the distillery, drank everything in the distillery, and then trashed the village. The elephants had to be euthanized. Now, nobody is recommending euthanasia for those who consume alcohol in our midst. However, in the Bible narrative, euthanasia was once, one time, it was a strategy. I'm talking about the two preacher kids, the two preacher boys, the sons of Aaron, their names Nadab and Abihu, who in a drunken stupor stagger into the sanctuary and the glory of God just... As their bodies are being dragged by their brothers to be buried, God makes a point. Take a look at this. Leviticus chapter 10, God says, do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that you may distinguish between the holy and the unholy, between the unclean and the clean. Anecdotally, the Bible makes its case. Have you ever heard of the story about Daniel and his, four univers- his three university student peers, Daniel? And there's... There- They discover they're going to be served the wine of Babylon. And so Daniel makes a choice. Everybody knows Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. Let's put it on the screen, please. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies. And it also says, we left that line out, but it also says the wine. And therefore he requested the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Anecdotally, the Bible makes the case. Let's take the death of our Lord Jesus, who as he's hanging on the cross, they bring to him, just as they're preparing, maybe just before uh, hoisting him, they bring him sour wine mixed with gall. You know what he says? He tastes it. Let's look at the record here in Matthew 27. They gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it and realized what it was and knew why they wanted him to, because alcohol will numb the mind, that's a no-brainer. He said, I will not have that, thank you, and pushed it. Away with his, with his jaw. He would not drink it. So we have anecdotal evidence. 
as well as textual. But you know what? I'm going to take a different approach. And I'd like to come back to appetite for a moment. You know what appetite is? That very God-given, that very wonderful capacity we all have to hunger and thirst, to be able to savor tasty food, to be able to relish delectable drink. I mean, thank God for appetite. I mean, can you imagine being a machine and just, you'd be like a car engine. Just give me that gas. I'll suck it up. No taste. No nothing. God made us with appetite. But, but God created the human race. And let me do the anatomy. I'll step around from behind this uh, pulpit. God made the human race intentionally one way. He said, I want your reason. By the way, point on your own body to where reason is in your body. Just point. You follow me. Point to where reason is. Yeah, put your finger up here. Come on, put your finger up here. This is where reason takes place. Is that not right? Am I making this up? No. Now, point to where appetite takes place. I know it happens through the nerve signals. But where does appetite involve? We're talking about, yeah, right, right here. God says, hey, I want, to, I want you to see how I made you. Reason is to be elevated above appetite. You'll be just fine with reason up here and appetite down here. The devil comes along, who is the enemy of God, and it turns out he's the enemy of the human race, and he immediately sets out to reverse God's creation. And you know what he does? The devil, this devil makes fools of us because he said, I'm going to make you walk on your hands. I'm going to make you walk on your hands because I want your head down and I want your belly up. I want the belly over the head. I want the visceral to control the rational and the spiritual. Would you jot that down, please? In in our creation, God elevated reason over appetite. But in our fall, Satan elevated appetite over reason. He did it with Adam and Eve at the tree, didn't he? He said, hey, good looking. Come here. Girl, come here. Hey, you ought to taste this. In fact, if you taste this, it'll give you a high so high, you will be higher than God Himself. Eat it. Appetite elevated over reason. Did it it right at the beginning. He did it with Esau. Remember remember the story of Esau? He's been hunting all day, and he's coming in, and oh man, is he famished. And he gets a whiff of his uh, twin brother Jacob's lentil stew. How you could get mouth-watering over that, I have no idea. But he smells that lentil stew. And he said, oh, oh. And then, and then Satan whispers to him, hey, Esau, let me just tell you something, boy. You are hungry. Oh, Esau, I want to tell you something. You are so hungry, I predict you will die if you don't get that. So while Satan's doing that number, getting appetite over reason, he's over here to Jacob saying, hey, by the way, boy, this is your big chance. Why don't you make a deal? Make a deal with your brother. Tell him you'll give him, you, you'll give him the stew if he'll give you the birthright. Boom! And so Satan comes. Esau, who should have been the prince, the leader of that tribe, Ah, come on, this silly little birthright stuff. You don't believe God's promises, do you? You're hungry, boy. You're hungry. Eat. Appetite over reason. Native and Abihu, appetite over reason. Satan attempted that with Daniel. Appetite over reason. He lost. Satan comes to Almighty God in human form in the wilderness and makes the same play. Appetite over reason. Come on. Who, hey, who, who are you? Huh? Look like you haven't eaten in 40 days and 40 nights. Pitiful. And suppose you think that you are who, they, who you've been saying you are, Son of God. Yeah, right. Give me another one. Tell you what, I'm from heaven. If you're really the Son of God, see those, I bet you're hungry. See those stones? You turn one of, them into, one of them into baked bread and I will believe you, sir, that you are who you are. Appetite elevated over reason. But Jesus sniffed a snake. Smelled the old serpent. And you know what Jesus does? This is incredible. 
He goes to our theme book for this series, Deuteronomy, and by memory, he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. Our last text to look up. I need you to see it in your Bible, please. Deuteronomy, you're in Numbers. Just go the next book over, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Amazing. He takes our theme book and quotes from it. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Moses' farewell address. He'll be dead At the end of this address, he'll climb Mount Nebo. Leader fell. Leader failed. It's a high price that leaders pay. Tough job, but also high price. So, Moses is talking to these grown-up children whose parents are now buried in the wilderness. So, God humbled you and He allowed you to hunger. Would you hit the pause button right there? I want to suggest that there are times when God lets you and me hunger in order to reveal to us the ferocious power of appetite. I was flying to another camp meeting. It's over in New Jersey. And so you have a good breakfast. It's Friday, so I'm going to start preaching first thing Sabbath morning. It's it's Friday. You get a good breakfast. And then uh, you fly over to the East Coast, going to New Jersey. And I fly United. And you know what United serves you? Nothing, nothing, nothing but these... Pitiful, pitiful pretzels. That's all you get. A tiny little bag. If you have another airline that feeds you better, let me know. Nothing. So I, I, get, this little, I get this little bag. So I get the thickest drink, drink I can get, and that's tomato juice. And I wolf it all down with tomato juice. At the story of my life, the plane is late. So I get into to, uh, wherever it is in New Jersey late. And then I have this rental car, and I'm thinking, you know, the Sabbath is coming. I'll find a place to eat. There will be a place to eat. I'm going down a turnpike I have never driven on in my life, and I cannot find a, find a blooming place to eat that, that, that evening. And I'm saying, this is terrible. I, I, ha- I had only breakfast. I am, I am dying. <laughs> I'm telling you, I have a problem with appetite. Some of you think that, you know what, if you're thin, you don't have a problem with appetite. I want to tell you something. Don't you ever fall into that kind of thinking. Appetite is not determined by the size of your body. Appetite is determined by the force of that hunger. It has nothing to do with your weight. Don't you let anybody, either side of the spectrum, lock you into a corner. You understand? Appetite. I see, I see skinny little people running around, and that appetite is out of control in their lives. They're eating all through the day, and they say, well, that's not no problem with me. Look at it. No, it is a problem with you, sir. It's a problem with me, I'll tell you. So I'm driving. I say, well, I can't find anything to eat. Okay, I'll, I'll go without food. I'll do this for you, God. <laughs> so I get to this hotel and I check in. Is there any place to eat? No, nowhere to eat. Be breakfast in the morning at 6. Okay. A little, a, little, a little bottle of mints. I was tempted to empty them into my pocket and go up to my room. I did it. But I got, I got up into the room, and you know what? By now, I'm throwing a tizzy fit with God. I'm just saying, God, I don't but What is the problem? And just like that, God came to me and said, let's just take a little time out. Would you breathe? <laughs> you skip two meals, and you're going ballistic. I went 40 days and 40 nights without a morsel to eat. Don't you tell me the power of appetite in your life. It ain't nothing. And boy, was I chastised and set straight. There are times when God allows hunger to overtake us, to show us the ferocious, visceral power of appetite. That's what Jesus didn't quote the whole verse to Satan. He knew the whole verse. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna. By the way, if you're struggling with appetite, that is one of the solutions to appetite. I'm telling you the truth. Nutritionists will tell you, 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 you move to a simple diet. This rich, 
this multiple 500 course eating, you don't have to live that way. You can, you can cut back the power for, with simplicity. So he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that here it comes. Man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Write it down, please. Is Jesus talking about sliced bread? We don't live by sliced bread alone. No, no, no. Write it down. Man and woman shall not live by appetite alone. Appetite must be subservient to reason. That's the point. Lucifer is going for it. The juggler He's going for appetite as he's done all through history. But Jesus stops him cold. He said, I'm not going to live by that way. I will not yield to this force. Of course it's a force in me. But I will not yield to it. Man shall not live by bread alone, by appetite alone, but by every word that proceeds. Capital W word, the word of God that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus point to Satan. Write it down. Reason must supersede appetite. Faith must rise above food. Your life must be dictated through your mind and not your belly. And I put a verse there. Let me put the verse on the screen for you. This is an amazing verse. Paul, with tears, writes this. He's writing in prison, by the way. Brothers and sisters, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have from us a pattern. So go ahead and follow the way we live. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping. I'm telling you in tears that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Who are they? Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. The tragedy is that even for the chosen, the belly can become the God. Not just for drink, but also for food. That's why this sermon on alcohol is really a teaching on appetite. Yeah, but come on, Pastor, give me a break. Alcohol is a lot worse. Oh, really? A hundred years ago, jot this down. A hundred years ago, these words were written. The Word of God places the sin of gluttony in the same catalog, in the same category with drunkenness. Because appetite out of control is appetite out of control, whether it is food or drink. And by the way, whether you are a college student or a leader of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, if you don't have your appetite under control, you got a problem. I have a problem. I have a problem. Because we want this little be, come on, do I get him? Get him. Get him in this alcohol thing. Because I don't touch alcohol. Get him. Get him. Get him. No, it's not about alcohol. It's about appetite. Appetite. So let's not you and I be too hard on the alcohol drinker. We who also struggle with, with our appetite. And I am one. So what hope is there for our addictions? i got some great news for you. Great news for you. Great news for your roommate. Great news for your spouse. Great news for your children. By the way, when you leave here, there will be a magazine. I want to put a magazine. You take it home. You take a look at it. Delightful magazine. That will be at the door when you leave. And by the way, you're watching on television right now. Call the 800 number at the end. You'll see this 800 number. We're, we're right near the end now. Call that 800 number when you see it. Write it down. And we'll make sure that the magazine is mailed to you. All right. But here's the great news. Dwayne McBride, okay? Our, our researcher, our sociologist here. In their study of... Adventist young in our colleges over this 20-year period, they discovered, and here's where your study guide is worth all of this, eight resilience factors, 
they found out that there are eight resilience factors that will either keep young adults out of alcohol or help young adults get out of alcohol. Eight of them. And by the way, Dwayne says that these eight factors, resilience factors, work for any addiction. So they're good news for all of us. Okay, jot them down and then I'll sit down. Uh, Number one, parents. These are eight factors. Parents accept youth unconditionally in a home characterized by love and warmth. That's great. By the way, these are not in, in priority. I'll show you the, the number one predictor in just a moment. Number one, parents accept youth unconditionally. You, the kids need to live in a home where I'm accepted. Number two, the young adult is able to talk to another adult about anything. There has to be some adult in that, in that young adult's life that he can talk to or she can talk to. Number three, able to talk to faculty or staff about anything. You know what? God has called you and me to teach classes at this university. Our mission is not only behind the lectern. Our mission is in front of that lectern. It is in the mixing and the blending with young adults somebody's looking, is this the guy that I can trust? Is this the woman? Is this the teacher? I can trust with everything on my heart. They're looking. When they have that, it's a factor that keeps them out of alcohol or gets them out. Okay, and here is the number one predictor. Isn't this amazing? Number one predictor, they attend church nearly every week. The young adults surveyed who attend church nearly every week answered no to the question, did you, did you subsist with alcohol last year. This is the highest predictor. So let me just tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. You are in the right place to live a life set free from addictions. Any addiction. You came to the right place. I don't care where you go as long as you go. Isn't that something? Number five, they attend Sabbath school nearly every week. Amazing. Number, these are eight resilience predictors. Number six, they have personal prayer several times a week. Praying. Number seven, they read the Bible at least weekly. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. They read the Bible at least weekly. And finally, number eight, community service, four plus hours a month. The bus will be leaving this afternoon to Benton Harbor, inner city. You want to give some hours of public service? Get involved in community service here at Andrews University. And by the way, adults, that's true for you and me with our addictions as well. You need to be helping others, not just me, 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 me. Ah, yeah, there you are. Can you believe it? Eight resilience factors to keep your appetite under control of reason and away from alcohol or addictive behavior. Eight of them. Turns out Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said, man and woman do not live by bread alone, not by appetite, no, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If you go to the Word of God, it will elevate your reason above your appetite. Right now you have appetite up, go to the Word of God. It will reverse you back to your divinely intended creation. Reason here, appetite here. Reason higher than appetite. I want to end with this quotation. This is great news. This is something. This is desire of ages. Whoa. By passing over the ground which we must travel, our Lord has prepared the way for us to overcome. It's not His will that we should be placed at a disadvantage in the conflict with Satan. He would not have us intimidated and discouraged by the assaults of the serpent. And I love this. Be of good cheer, Jesus says. I've overcome the world. John 16:33. Let him, let her who is struggling against the power of appetite look to the Savior in the wilderness of temptation. See Him in His agony upon the cross as He exclaimed, I thirst. He has endured all that it is possible for us to bear. His victory. Hallelujah. Write it down. His victory is ours. Ladies and gentlemen, how could the news get any better than that, huh? I have overcome the world. 
be of good cheer. My victory is your victory. Some of you are struggling with alcohol abuse in your life. You're struggling with it. I'm telling you, my friend, I'm not giving you a simplistic solution because if you join AA and some of you need to join AA, one of the first things they'll tell you is you've got to depend on divine power. That divine power has a name and His name is Jesus. My victory is your victory. What I did for you at Calvary, I will do for you now. I will give you the power to put reason back up again over appetite. How many want to... Hey, come on, guys. How many want to say, Jesus, you know what's going on in my life right now? I need to say this to him. You know what's going on in my life right now? Jesus, please, through the power of your victory at Calvary, would you reverse, do what you must do, but would you put reason at the top and let me live in the power of your victory. You want to say that to Jesus right now? Stand to your feet. If you want to say that to Jesus, stand to your feet and say, Jesus, do it please. Why wouldn't I stand? But of course I would stand. Oh Christ, we're not promising you anything because our, our will is like ropes of sand. We've been there and done that. But we're standing to our feet. Holy Christ, on the cross, the power of your victory it can be ours. And so we stand. We got addictions. Come on, look at us. We got appetite. Please. We got it. But we're on the borders of the promised land. Paul was right. Some stuff has to get dealt with now. We can't deal with it. Don't have the guts. But Holy Christ, you have the power. You said, Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. My victory is yours. And so we stand, Jesus. Give it to every man, woman, and child standing. And what you begin here, Holy Christ, journey with us every step of the way. For your name's sake, let all the people say, Amen and Amen.